Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, to you we do sing hallelujah. We thank you for Jesus, the Word, God made flesh, Emmanuel. Prepare our hearts as we prepare to receive your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas is coming up, isn't it? Just think about this for a moment. What do you do to, new, to prepare for Christmas? What are the things on your to-do list in preparing for Christmas? Now, for those who are just uh, here today visiting, uh, we also, every week, we have sermon notes. If you want to follow along, we have the sermon notes. But just think about it for a moment. What are the things you do to prepare for Christmas? Now, for some people who get stuck on how to prepare for Christmas, there are actually websites dedicated to it. I don't know if you know that. And it's interesting. I looked at a number of these websites, and they're all fairly similar. Here are the steps you need to do to prepare for Christmas. The first one is obviously get your gift list in order. Decide what your budget is, how much you can spend, who should get what gift, look for the best deals, all that stuff. That's first on almost everybody's list. The second thing on the list, it says, this one's kind of weird. It says setting the scene. It's about getting the ambiance right here they're getting um, aroma oil I don't know maybe it's evergreen oil or something like that but it's often about watching uh, certain movies Christmas movies that you like and you know what's weird have you ever heard of the movie Bruce Willis Die Hard there's a big debate is that a Christmas movie or not Uh, But also listening to the right Christmas music. This website listed this for maybe some Christmas songs. Santa Baby by Madonna. All I Want for Christmas is You by uh, Mariah Carey. And You're a Mean One, Minster Minster Grinch. Okay, that's setting the ambience. The next thing is obviously food. It's about getting ready and preparing all the food. And yes, I understand we are going to brunch today, so I get that. But it's all about food. And the next one then is planning Christmas events. So getting together with family, with friends, what parties you're going to go to, what uh, shows you might go see, all that sort of stuff. And then the last part of this website the very last thing said and this it's in red you can't read it it says optional depending on your faith find a place to worship depending on your faith christmas may be a time to express your faith that is the very last thing now you got to do all these other steps but this last part yeah that's optional So I thought maybe today in preparing for Christmas, we should look at some better questions. And the questions we are going to take a look at is why do we prepare? How and when do we prepare? And for what or whom do we prepare? So we are going to actually start with the first one is why? Why should we even prepare? And I'm going to take you uh, to 1914. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, 1914, a miracle, as some people called it, happened. There was a truce that Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. For a moment, there was a cessation of war. There was peace for just a moment. 
Stanley Weintraub, the author of Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas truce, said in an interview that it was a German officer who was a tenor and in the Berlin Opera. On Christmas Eve night, he started to sing Silent Night. And he sang it both in German and then in English. And it's, he, the, the author says, in the clear cold night of Christmas Eve, his voice carried very far. The shooting had stopped and in that silence he sang and the British knew the song and sang it back. One soldier in a different uh, account said, first the Germans would sing one of their carols and then we would sing one of ours until we started up, O come, all ye faithful. The Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn with the Latin words, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, wow, this is most really extraordinary thing. Two nations singing the same carol in the middle of a war. The next morning, Christmas Day, in some places, Germans emerged from their trenches calling out Merry Christmas in English. Allied soldiers came out to warily greet them. In other places, Germans held up the sign, you no shoot, we no shoot. And in the course of the day, the troop exchanged gifts of cigarettes, food, buttons, hats. There's a picture on there. They even played a game in the middle of the field. And during this time, it also gave each side a chance to go out and get the dead who had laid between the no man's land and the trenches, uh, between the trenches, who had been laying there. So for a moment, there was peace. But it didn't last. And ultimately that war ended up with millions of people dying. Now I want to take you to a different type of place, a different type of war. We're going to go back to the Old Testament and to Isaiah. As I mentioned last week, the uh, nation of Isaiah, uh, the nation of Israel, sorry, the book of Isaiah, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had been in a tumult for a long time. There had been many wars, many casualties, but the greatest war was not the physical war. The greatest war was actually a spiritual battle between the nation of Israel and God. In fact, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are a strong rebuke by the Lord to the nation for their rebellion. And so in the beginning of Isaiah, it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Because of the sin of Israel, they were utterly estranged from God. Now, they actually deserved what they got because of their rebellion against God. Now, if you were an earthly father and your children had rebelled so greatly against you, it would be very easy to say, you got what you deserve. You are on your own. 
but the Holy One of Israel had promised salvation to his people. And even though they did not keep the covenant, God would. And as a matter of fact, all along from the very beginning through the very end, God has promised salvation for those who have faith in him. As a matter of fact, the name Isaiah means Yahweh, which is the Lord. Yahweh is salvation. So what you're finding here, even though there's a strong rebuke, you find in the book of Isaiah that the message of salvation by grace through faith in God is proclaimed. First 39 chapters are rebuke, but then it shifts. And there's a dramatic shift because now Israel has been taken captive. They have felt the effects of war. And now we get to this, and this begins our reading. Isaiah chapter 40, starting verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. Anytime in the Old Testament that you see words that are repeated, it is a way to emphasize that. They didn't have bold or italics or underline. So it is comfort, comfort. And in this case, the comfort isn't just a platitude. Isn't just, oh, they're there. Everything will be better. It is much, much deeper. There is a compassion there. It is as if God is saying, I am speaking to your heart and you will find consolation in me. You will find comfort it is a message from God to your very heart. And the comfort is that your warfare is ended, that you will no longer be estranged from God. Not that Israel could actually take the first step, by the way. Israel, notice here, Israel did not take the first step in that reconciliation. It is God who always takes the first step in reconciliation because rebellion is deep in our heart against God. Rebellion is there from the very beginning and thus in salvation it is always the Lord who makes the first step. It is always the Lord who brings peace. And he says, your iniquity is pardoned that there is complete forgiveness. And it's just not a one-time forgiveness, but it is a grace, a double, a double forgiveness. It is a double grace. And so where do we find that double grace? We find it in Christ Jesus. As it talks about in the Gospel of John, Jesus is grace upon grace. In Christ Jesus, our warfare is ended. Our iniquity is pardoned. Look, there's a lot of battles going on right now. Maybe for you, maybe your friends, in the trenches, in the warfare, so to speak, of what's going on in the world at the very moment. And if you but lift your heads, if they but lift their heads and look out across the battlefield, they will see not only Christ Jesus as a child, God made flesh. They will see Christ Jesus as the man who has borne every 
bullet of sin that has ever been fired. And though he has been bloodied, he still stands. And he calls out to you a message of reconciliation and a message of peace. In Christ Jesus, our warfare with God has ended. Our iniquity is pardoned. There is peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in, the fl- in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So why should we prepare for the coming of Christ? Because our warfare has ended And we are to prepare our hearts to receive him. But how do you prepare your hearts to receive Jesus? And here we go to verse 3 of our reading from Isaiah. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. There are many lessons actually to come just from these few words. The first is, it is about the king who goes out to see his people. And so when the king would go out, literally, they didn't have the highways. They didn't have the road work that we have. They would go out before the king and they would level the ground for the king to come. But I want you to notice, this is a subtle point and gets missed. In the warfare that is being ended It is the king who goes out to make peace. It is not that you and I are summoned to his throne, that we must make the journey. It is the king who first goes out. Again, God always makes that first step in reconciliation. And also notice that this is about making the way level, the way smooth, So are we talking road construction here? Are we talking that you and I in preparing should go out and start filling the cracks and crevices of all the roads here? Or is there something else? Is it a spiritual preparation? And the answer to that is yes. And how do we know? Because we can actually go from our reading from Luke. This is about John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So what we find in John the Baptist, it is the fulfillment of what is prophesied in Isaiah. There's a direct correlation there. And John was in the wilderness. Yes, he was in the outskirts. He was in the wilderness, so people came to him. But when we talk about making that road level, it is the wilderness of our heart, I would suggest to you. It's the spiritual state of our heart, a heart that has been hardened, a heart that has mountains of pride, that has weeds and thorns growing every which way. And so thus the question is, how to prepare? And what did John preach? 
he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you want to know how to prepare your heart to receive Jesus the King? It is through repentance. Now, repentance is a word that is not found in many churches today. You aren't going to find that word. Some people are going to say it's too harsh. As a matter of fact, if John the Baptist were preaching today, people would say, you, something. I don't even know what they would say. But they would turn away from him because he is not being loving. But he's saying the way to prepare is through repentance. The trouble is with repentance, we don't want to repent because we want to justify ourselves. But the closer you get to God, the more repugnant sin is. And the more you need, you know you need to repent. Look, this happened with King David. Psalm 51. Now, when you read the introduction to the psalm, it says this, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Bathsheba. So here it is. It's actually a title saying, this is a psalm of David after he was accused of adultery. So here's the context for this. If you, if you recall it all, David saw Bathsheba while she was bathing on the roof. He was smitten by her. He invited her over. They had an adulterous affair. She became pregnant. Then her husband came from the battle. And David wanted to get rid of the husband. So he actually sent him back into the battle and told his commander, when he is there, surrounded by enemies, I want you to pull the troops back so that he dies. So Nathan the prophet confronts him. And this is Psalm 51. It's not all on your screen, but the part, parts of it are. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is a psalm of repentance. It is a psalm holding nothing back, coming before the Lord. Therefore, you and I, in preparing for Jesus, his arrival, we might pray something like this, Lord, straighten my heart. 
straighten my mind, straighten my soul, straighten my entire being so that I am prepared for you. Show me the way. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let all my thoughts, let all my actions, let everything be pleasing to you. We prepare through repentance. By the way, for those who are already brokenhearted, for those who are contrite, we also find comfort in the verses. We find comfort that God will lift you up, will draw you closer to him. So we prepare because our warfare has ended. We prepare through repentance. Now, when should we repair? Going back to our scripture reading from Isaiah, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When you were young, What did you think old was? I mean, when when I was 10, 18 was like, wow, you know? And then when you're 18, you kind of go, well, that wasn't quite it. And then you think, well, maybe it's 25 or 30. I mean, it gets older and older, right? And the days go by faster and faster. And what you don't know when you're so young is that your body isn't immortal. And that as you get older and older, you know that you do perish. And it goes pretty fast. I remember one time, um, Heidi and I were with some good friends, and we'd known them for years, uh, decades. And we were in the kitchen just talking. And in my mind, I was thinking... We sound like a commercial for all of those pharmaceuticals. You know, have you ever had that thought? That, wow, we sound like that commercial. So there's an urgency behind the words in Isaiah. All flesh is grass. And all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. But it's not just our body either, is it? It's actually everything that we have done in our life. And I'm kind of amazed, but Ecclesiastes has come up several times recently. Then I considered that all my hands, all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity of striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun that fits exactly with the grass withers and the flower fades. You see, it is this, all the works of man are going to fade. Our bodies are going to fade. All of our works are going to fade, but God, his word will never fade. Cultures will change, values will change, but God and his word will never change. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Christ Jesus is eternal. He is the word of God. He will never pass away. So do you want to focus on the here and now, all of the things that are going to pass away? 
Or do you want to prepare your hearts for eternal life with Christ Jesus? Prepare your hearts. Now, here's a question we might think is obvious, but we need to go into this. For what or whom are you to prepare? It says in verse 5 from our reading from Isaiah, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Is the glory of God which will be revealed. Now, how do you explain the glory of God? I mean, we did a whole series in A Glimpse of Heaven, and we spent four weeks taking a look at heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and we got a glimpse of the glory of God there. We also can see a glimpse of the glory of God uh, at Mount Sinai. He is appearing like a devouring fire. With Ezekiel, Ezekiel, there was a a chariot that came down from heaven, and that showed the glory of God. When Jesus was born, right, the glory of God was shown to the shepherds, and they trembled with fear. You want to know the glory of God? His name is Jesus. He is the glory of God. That little baby in the manger is the glory of God. In Hebrews, it says, actually, I uh, have it as Hebrews. He is the radiance, yes. There's Hebrews and Colossians, both very similar. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of, by the word of his power. He is, Jesus is, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the unique Son of God, full of grace and truth. And thus, we prepare not just a baby, but the glory of God. And when you take a look at the manger, and I like this picture because it has not only the manger, but what else do you see there? You see the cross, don't you? When we behold the glory of God, we not only behold the glory of God in Christ Jesus, the child, we behold the glory of God in the cross. And you can never separate the two. There's a a fellow, well-known preacher who has passed away. His name uh, was Dr. S.M. Lockridge. He was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. He's well known for a particular section of a sermon called He's My King. I would encourage you, if you want the whole section of it, it's about six minutes long or so. It's on YouTube. I'm going to just... I'm just going to relay a little bit of what he wrote because he is describing Jesus, the King. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's a sinner savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. He is supreme. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Do you know my king? See, on 
the road of Advent here, of preparation, which, which is the arrival, right? The arrival of our King. Are you preparing to receive the glory of God? Or are you preparing to receive your King? See, if you were really preparing to receive your King, then you would, as it says in Isaiah, get up, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Go up to the mountaintops, shout with joy that Jesus the King has come. Prepare the way for others to let them know that Jesus the King is come. And when you prepare and fill your heart with him, don't you, as the song says, with every breath, sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's what we should be singing this Advent as we prepare hallelujah. You prepare your heart to receive the glory of God, Jesus, Emmanuel, Savior, King. You prepare your heart because your warfare is ended and there is peace with God through Christ Jesus. You prepare your heart through repentance. You prepare, your, you prepare now. There's the urgency of now, not later. And you receive the glory of God. This is what we do in preparation in Advent. And for everyone, we sing hallelujah. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. 